So, before I get started, one, one thing that was really cool is like this, this intro meeting where we, uh, there, were, there were a bunch of people who, who came together to pray for the service. Um, it was alive, and uh, there was a really good like vibe. And something that we say at our, my church every week is that we want to be a community, not an event. And I felt really humbled just seeing how much of a community uh, that little circle was. And, and the verse that came to mind was, uh, that they'll know you're my disciples by your love for one another. And I, I totally felt that this morning. And um, I'm, I'm humbled. And then also, like, you guys really dipped into worship. Like, I don't know if you guys do that every week. I don't think there, anyone has the emotional resources to worship like that every week. Um, but it was really cool to see that, that uh, that's going on. And so I just want to let you guys know I really respect you. Um, and, um, yeah. So my, my wife and I were trying to start a, a movement of house churches, a network of house churches in, in Seattle. And we want to touch every corner of, of Seattle with the love of God and from there the whole world. Uh, so it's a small vision that we're setting out on. Um, and I've been, I've been fundraising for 12 years, 10 for InterVarsity, 2 for this church. And in 12 years, never, never has someone called me up and said, I want to give to you. It's always me initiating, right? So when Dan called, I was like, wait, you want to meet about what? <laughs> like, what are you talking about? This doesn't happen. Um, but it should be that way. It should be that way. There should be this uh, welling up of generosity, uh, this desire to give to something um, that reflects the kingdom of God, and that's really awesome. And I firmly believe that we need churches in the urban centers where people are walking away from God. I firmly believe that there is no place that, that, that's post-Christian, that Jesus is speaking everywhere. And I think it's very important that, what we're doing, that, that we're doing what we're doing, and I think it's very important that you guys are giving to what we're doing. And I just want to say thank you, and we wouldn't be able to do it if people like you guys didn't give. So thank you. Um, and then I, I like to... I've, I've been told it's a good idea to show a picture of your family when you're, when you're first uh, doing these things. So here's a picture of my family right here. Uh, she just started walking, uh, like, she just turned one and started walking like a month ago. She's four. She can sing in tune. It's a point of pride for me. Um, that's my wife. Then the next picture, this happened yesterday, and I was like, put that one in two. Look at those two. Look at those two. Have I endeared myself to you guys now? Do you guys like me now? Um, Good. And then the other thing that I like to do before I start is, is a little bit of confession, especially when I'm going to do a challenging message, and today's a pretty challenging uh, message. Um, I want to make it clear that I don't have a right to talk to you the way that I'm going to talk to you. Um, I'm a, I've got a lot of sin. I have issues with alcohol. I have issues with lust. I have issues with um, outbursts of anger with my family. Um, I have... I have Issues with anxiety and pride and uh, not trusting God has me where he wants me and always hoping to be somewhere else in life. Um, all the rotten thoughts that are going through your head, some form of them are going through mine too. Um, and I have no right to talk to you the way that I'm going to talk to you today. But God does. And I hope that you're from God today and not from me, okay? Um, because today we're dealing with one of the most disturbing passages in all of Scripture. Let's read it. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the, to the, to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. 
he took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he'd cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and he took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a boy on the hand, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw uh, a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a, as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand of the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Is this passage allowed in church? Are we reading this? Are, are, are the kids gone? Can we talk about this now? Because who here, who here, if someone came up to you, let's say it's, it's one of the most spiritually mature people in this congregation. Let's say Dan comes up to you and he says, I, I've been praying and I, I keep hearing this and God is saying to me that I need to take my daughter up into the woods and sacrifice her. And so I'm going to take an axe tomorrow and I'm going to do it. Who here is going to take him even seriously? Who's, who here is going to like actually say, you know what? Maybe. No one, right? And if you had these thoughts, if, if, you, if you were praying to God, who here would trust their connection to, to God to the extent that if God was saying, sacrifice your, 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 your loved one to me, who here would even take that seriously? No, you'd say, I'm having weird, strange thoughts. This isn't good. I need to be checked in somewhere. You would say, if, if Dan was doing it, you would call the authorities. You'd be like, this is, I can't handle this alone. I need to call the authorities and maybe have him committed. Um, how ironic is it that we hold this passage up as this paragon of faith, Abraham, the man of faith, and we just read right through it. Yes, good job, Abraham. And yet if anyone in this congregation announced the same intentions, we would have them arrested or confirmed. What's going on here? If you read this passage and you have a nice settled feeling about it, you're not paying attention. Okay? And I, I'm going to try to make it seem less insane. 
in a minute. We're going to focus on how his culture was different. We're going to focus on how this foreshadows something that God wouldn't, wouldn't require again because it's already happened. Um, we're going to focus on those things. But before we get there, let's just focus on this for a second. Christian culture has become this safe, innocuous thing that would, that would be totally unrecognizable to our founders. What we're doing here looks nothing like what they were doing. And we're afraid of the Bible. And so when we hit passages like this, we flatten them out. We, we uh, either, either focus on what are the little things in life that we need to give up, you know, a little bit of money or whatever. Um, we focus on the second part and we say, will we trust that God will provide? There's the message we can preach on. Will you say that God... But we just skip right past the first part and we, flat, we flatten it out. Today we say that what it means to be a Christian is to sit in a pew and be nice to your neighbors and maybe, we probably never get here, but maybe invite them to church, dress conservatively, uh, embrace ritual. Do we know that our founders were, were these wild people who were homeless wanderers, who set out, left it all behind to, to follow the severe voice of God at all costs? And this, is, this isn't just Abraham, this is Jesus, this is Peter, this is, this is uh, Paul, this is Isaac, this is, this is all of them. All of them. We've made, we've made uh, church a safe thing, and it's not because we're paying attention to the Bible. It's because we're paying t- attention to our culture. We live in a very entitled, very uh, comfortable culture. And y- do you guys know what the, the central idea that drives Amazon is, the, the, uh, the central philosophy of Amazon? It's a two-word two uh, statement. Do you guys know what it is? Buy more. That's close. Any other guesses? What the central philosophy that has made Amazon what it is? It's more money. That's pretty close. Um, it's customer obsession. That's what they. That's internally what that's that's what drives them. That's that's the the motto. We are obsessed with the customer. Everything that we do is 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 about making the experience of consumption as easy, painless, um, and comfortable as possible for us. They are obsessed with us. Every uh, business out there that's succeeding, this is what they're doing. And Amazon's done it the best. And uh, that's why they're the second most valuable com- company in the world, soon to be the most valuable company in the world, because they've hacked in to our culture and the way that we're built and, and how we're wired. And they know that we expect to be obsessed over. And so we've built churches that are obsessed over us. We're used to being obsessed with, and so we make church into a thing that, that obsesses over us. We've got coffee. We've got comfortable chairs. Uh, we've got uplifting sermons. We've got uh, really good music. And it's a very comfortable thing. And we flatten out messages like this, and we don't, we don't deal with the risk. What would church look like if we had just the tiniest bit of the wildness of our founders? Abraham set off to, set, to start a whole nation. Like, what, what godly ambitions would come out of us if we started to risk it all the way that our founders did? And think about, let's think about how hard this would have been for Abraham, right? So Abraham, he left his culture, left his whole family behind. That's a hard thing to do. But he did it because God gave him this promise. 
that he was going to start a new nation. And for ancients who are a family-based culture, the idea that you would start a new nation is the highest dream that anyone could, could, could have. And that that new nation would hold the presence of God in it, that's worth leaving your culture for, right? So he takes this huge risk, and he sets out on, the, on this dream that God's given him, right? And he sets out at 75 with a wife who's never had children, okay? <laughs> and then he has to wait 25 years! He has to wait 25 more years and have a baby at 100, okay? Do you know what was happening 25 years ago? Do you guys know what was happening in 1993? Let me sum it up for you. Free Willy came out. <laughs> That's it, man. 1993 was a sleeper. Free Willy. Hand up in the air. That water just trickling down. You can do it, Willy! Anyone? Anyone remember that? If you don't remember that, it's probably because it was 25 years ago. All right? He had to wait one reverse free Willy. See? <laughs> that grainy old movie. He had to wait 25 more years at the age of 75, right? Um, and then finally he gets this weird miracle baby, uh, this post-menopause miracle baby at 100, and that baby symbolizes the dream that he left it all behind for. And the scripture says, uh, Isaac, whom you love. This is the first time that the word love happens in Scripture. There's a sweet affection. And if, if anybody, has anybody had a child here? Anyone? What? Only three of you? <laughs> Come on, get your hands up. Anyone? Yeah. If you, <laughs> I was like, that just doesn't add up. <laughs> if, anybody's, if anybody's had a child, right, like, there's that first moment when you hold them and that warm, just little pooping, snuggly ball of love and you're holding that thing and something changes in your brain. And it's, there's this, this cocktail of just this parental, like, I'm a parent now. And it's this, this, this mixture of, like, everyone tells you that you're responsible for this thing and, and you can see how helpless it is that you go into full-on mama bear mode and your whole life becomes about protecting the child at that point, right? And, and you're going to obsess over every little sound that they make at night and be like, oh, my God, are they dying? And you're going you're gonna to run around and you're going to put caps over all of the, of the uh, electrical outlets. And you're going to take all the stuff off of the floor and you're going to look through your, your cabinets and make sure you get all the, all the uh, chemicals out of there, right? Because everything's about protecting the child and you will violently attack anything that threatens that because there's nothing stronger than, than, than that bond, right? Um, to have to look that child in the eye and lie to it. For three days. This wasn't for a moment. He had to walk to Moriah for three days and stay committed to this. To watch that child bleed out. To have to pick up the knife. It's not a lot that's harder than that. Think about how hard that would have been for him. Your deepest dream, your most loved person, God says, give it up. That's the first half of faith. God puts his finger on whatever could vie for priority number one in your life above God, and he says, give that thing up. What is it for you? Is it a dream? Is it a person? It's usually one or both of those, right? Because God wants to know, is that thing going to be first or, or am I going to be first? A dream? I have to daily give up my, my dream for who I want to be. Every single day I have to give that up. 
Uh, for 12 years, I've wanted to be a part of a large ministry, a really large ministry. Um, and I keep asking God, like, when can I leave this and go apply at a megachurch? Um, but God keeps telling me to, to be a part of these little evangelistic startups. And every day, I have to choose to, to be present in the life that God's asked me to live instead of the life that I want for myself. And I have to die to my dream and give my dream up to God and in order to love the people that I'm actually with. Right? Don't we all? A person... I was so, so, so warped about getting a girlfriend in, in my early 20s. I wanted a girlfriend more than anything else. And uh, I really liked this girl. And when she rejected me, it was bad. It was really bad. I was sort of suicidal. Like, I didn't have a, a concrete plan, but I, what it was is I was, I was next to a train track at one point. Um, and I, I noticed that I really wanted to throw myself in front of the train because I was just, I felt like there was nothing else in life that I wanted, and if I couldn't have her, um, I didn't know what I wanted to live for at all. Um, and God came to me at the, at the bottom of that, and he said, like, Caleb, do you actually think that this person's going to solve all the problems in your life? Like, have you ever seen a married couple? <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> what are you thinking? Um, and I, and I heard God say this, this uh, exact thing to me. I heard God say, um, you could have her and not have me, and you would have nothing. Or you could have me and have nothing else and have everything. And that pulled me out. What's the thing that you would most fear losing? You might never get it, uh, uh, have to fear that it will be taken away, but if you do ever have to fear that it will be taken away, that's a really, really good situation. Because at that point, you have the choice uh, whether you're going to rest the weight of your soul on it or on God. And every time something hard hits, we have the same op- opportunity because the reality is whatever you're holding on to, money, success, uh, a person, you will lose it. So why not offer it up? We want to make God a line item in our lives. We want to make, make God uh, just a responsibility that we get done with and then we move on to our own plans. We want to we pick me up an encouragement at, at church on Sunday so that we can go back to the things that we're already about. But God, God changes it so that you're not about the things that you're about anymore. You're, th- you're about the things that God is about. And we think that, that Abraham is crazy, but we're the crazy ones. Because we're the ones that say Jesus is the king of the universe, but we would rather watch Netflix than we would read the Gospels. We are crazy. We say that the God of the universe is watching us at all times sending the holy spirit to give us the words of life for our friends and yet every single time that we're around one of our neighbors or one of our friends we're more afraid of them than we are of the god who is watching us before during after sees inside of our heart knows everything about us and 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 beyond the front that we're putting up to anybody else and yet we put our conversations on with other people on on snooze we we say i'll get into the deep stuff later uh we're not awake We think that we can take the God of the universe and put him between eggs and lunch and then football afterwards, and that's insane, and we're all doing it. We're all doing it, and so we don't see it. We're all doing it. We're the crazy ones. God, we repent. God, uh, we ask that you would wake us up. We don't know how to wake ourselves up. God, make us us awake. Here's what Abraham knew. Uh, Our life is a conversation with God. 
And on the outside, it looks like all these different things. I've got I to answer these emails. I've got to uh, fill up the gas tank. I need to sort through the mail. I need to get to work. Um, it feels like our life's about a million different things. But in reality, at, the, at its deepest level, our, 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 our life is a conversation with God. Can you feel that? Are you having that conversation? Our life is a conversation with our Creator. That's the story of Genesis. The story of Genesis is, is God speaks and creation responds. Uh, God speaks things into existence, and they come into existence. They joyfully say yes to the, to the, to the voice of God. Um, and then humans, we have the choice about whether we're going to listen to God or not. And the, so the question, as Genesis moves along, is will we listen to the voice of God? Will we hear the God that's speaking to us? Abraham staked his life in a way that appears crazy to us. He staked his life on the voice of God. And so he is a man of greatness. Because if you don't stake your, voice, your, your, your life on the voice of God, you're going to stake it on something else. And it's going to be lesser. God, uh, Abraham staked his life. And it's always a risk. It's always scary. Um, that's why faith is a leap. But the first half of faith is, will you give everything to God? The second half of faith is the, is the, is the good part. And we're going to start talking about that now. So, okay. Abraham, uh, in this passage, he, he doesn't show any resistance. God says, uh, where are you? He says, here I am. He doesn't try to hide. Um, and then, two, two chapters earlier, when God says that he's going to take out Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham pleads for Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, would you save them for, for 30, for, for 20, for 10? With Isaac, he, he doesn't plead at all. He just immediately goes. It says that he gets up early in the morning. He doesn't tell Sarah about it. He lies to, to the people that he's walking with about it. And then when, uh, when Isaac says, uh, where's the ram? <laughs> like, where's the ram? Um, he says, don't worry, God will provide. Why is he able to do this? Uh, this is what Kierkegaard calls the paradox of faith. So before, before I, I jump into it, I want to I make sure we all know what a paradox is. So a paradox is when two apparently contradictory things uh, actually work together in some way that we can't see. So two things that seem like they could never work together, work together. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a magic trick, because magic tricks are a, are a form of paradox. Um, and magic tricks are... Cool. You all know what a paradox is, but now we, have, now we get to do a magic trick, too. Um, so this quarter, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rip open the back of my head, and I'm going to put this quarter in the back of my head, and then I'm going to pop it out of my mouth, um, and that's magic. All right, here we go. Ah! All right, I ripped open the back of my head, putting the quarter in, getting it in there. All right, sealing it up. Quarter's traveling through. There's not, nothing in my hands, right? Nothing in my hands. Nothing in my mouth. Woo! Huh? Yeah? <laughs> okay. So here, here, here's the paradox. Uh, from your perspective, this is impossible. There's no way that this quarter goes through the back of my head without killing me. These things cannot happen. They cannot be the same quarter, different quarter. Don't know. Um, but from the perspective of God, uh, check it out. When I'm back here, look at what I'm doing. I'm putting it right here in my arm. I'm, I'm putting it down like that. Now it's in my arm. It's down right here. And then when I do this, boom, just flies right out, right? Um, so, so the Christian form of, of, a, of a paradox is these apparently contradictory things that could never work together, uh, but that we trust. We trust that from the higher perspective of God, there's something that we're not seeing. There's some magic that's happening. 
and uh, that these things can actually work together. So here's the paradox of faith. Abraham fully gives up Isaac and is able to do it with joy because he fully expects to get Isaac back. This is the paradox of faith. And Kierkegaard calls it absurd to think that this could be true. Faith is fully giving everything to a God who you know is going to fully give you everything. And it's real, it's real sacrifice. I'm not saying that he didn't think he was going to have to sacrifice Isaac. He was going up in total obedience to God, but with an awareness of the goodness of God's character to the extent that he wasn't afraid and he could do it with joy. That's faith. To get it, we, got, we need some, some background. Um, so prehistoric people across all cultures, they didn't, have, they didn't have an idea of spirit and matter being different. That's like something that hasn't happened until the last 200 years, the, the idea that spirit and matter could be different things. So for them, everything was spiritual. And the wind was a spirit, and the sun was a spirit, and the rain was a spirit. And so when you ran into trouble, your, your crops weren't growing, or you were in war, or uh, you were in a tight spot, you would appeal to the forces beyond your control, to the gods that controlled them. And in pretty much every culture that's ever existed, there was this idea that if, if things aren't working for us, we need to sacrifice something. Um, and it's, it starts small, right? It's, uh, we don't have wheat growing this year. Let's sacrifice some wheat to the wheat god. Let's burn some wheat to the wheat god um, to please it. Uh, but... It's always got to be more. So if you, if you sacrifice uh, a certain amount to the wheat god, and then the next year you get more wheat, well, the god's been generous to you, so you need to give more wheat to, to the god. Um, if the next year you have less wheat, clearly the god's angry at you, so you need to give more. And so it escalates. And so it's, it was wheat last time. It's still not raining. Let's make it a bird. It's still not raining. Let's, let's make it a goat. It's, it's still not raining. They would start, uh, they, they had bloodletting uh, sacrifices. They, they would maim themselves. They would castrate themselves. And then the highest form was human sacrifice. The, high, the highest form was to give away the dearest thing that you had, which is, which is a human life, right? And pretty much every culture in every place in every continent was, was practicing this. It happened everywhere. Stonehenge, uh, they found bodies with arrow marks from, from human sacrifice. In India, they had funeral pyres where they'd force the women uh, onto fires. Uh, in, in the Incan uh, culture, they would wrap children in uh, blankets to suffocate them. Um, in Hawaii, they were clubbing people to death. In Carthage, they were burning people um, everywhere. China, Africa, every single continent. In Tanzania, they were, they were uh, sacrificing albinos. Every culture in every place had come to this understanding that the gods are angry at us and that we need to, to give some sort of sacrifice. And actually, the fact that our culture has nothing like this makes us an outlier in an interesting way. And I think it's, it's got to be because we think that science has, has so controlled our natural environment that we're not at the whim of forces beyond our control. We think that we've, we've controlled everything. Um, and that, that, that has some good elements. I'm not advocating human sacrifice, of course. Um, but it's also thrown us off of the deepest question in life, which is how do I get right with my creator? It's thrown us off of that question. And that question was front and center for Abraham. How do I get right for, with my creator? Um, 
And for, for Abraham, for, for God to ask for Isaac, it wouldn't have been a super crazy thing to him. There's something called the, the law of prim, primogeniture, which basically means that all of the resources of a family go to the firstborn son. We split it up among all the, all the people because we're an individual-based culture, um, and so we want everyone to be taken care of, and we split our, 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 our wealth up among everyone. That's not the way that it worked. Everything went to, to one person because they're a family-based culture, and they didn't want to dilute the wealth of the family. They wanted to keep the family strong and great, so they'd give everything to the, to the one person. They become the representative for the whole family and then the benefactor who takes care of everybody else. Um, it's a way of keeping the family strong, right? And so because the firstborn son was the inheritor, they were the representative of the family. And they were the highest gift that you could give to the gods. And there was a lot of firstborn uh, sacrifice to gods. And so when, when Abraham uh, hears from God, give up your firstborn son, if, if God had said, give up Sarah, give up your thirdborn, Maybe he would have been like, that's crazy, this isn't God, uh, uh, you know? But it made perfect sense for him to hear, this is, your, this is your firstborn son. He knew that he had a debt of sin that God could call in whenever he wanted, and he was like, I guess it's time, I guess. And, and this is, these are the gods that he was brought up around and used to, and for him it wouldn't have seemed crazy, right? And so as he goes up the mountain, he has two views of God colliding. He's got the, the same judgmental, angry God that he's used to, that, that all humans at that time had reasoned their way to, um, the God that demands Isaac. But he's also got this God of promise who said, you know what? I'm going to speak to you. I'm not going to be some hidden force. I'm going to come out and speak directly to you, and I'm going to form a nation through you, and that nation is going to come through Isaac. And so he's got this contradiction in front of him. And he does not know how these two things come together. He does not know how a God who would command him to give up his son could also promise a nation through that son. He doesn't know how it could be a God of command and promise, how it could be a God who tests, but also a God who provides, how it could be a God of justice, but also a God of grace. You see the two uh, most important forces that make up faith colliding. You see the paradox of faith coming together and he doesn't know how they are going to be brought together but he goes up in faith with joy knowing that he's got a good god that he's following not knowing how it's going to work out but willing to give everything to god and at the top of the mountain god makes it clear no no no. the paradox of faith isn't going to collide in your son it's going to be in mine and he says there's there's a ram over there Take that male lamb and sacrifice that instead. And Jesus was called the Lamb of God. Um, and the mountain that, uh, that Jesus was crucified on, Calgary, Golgotha, they also call it, uh, it was in the same mountain range and possibly even the same mountain as Mount Moriah. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, God came to Jesus and he said, I'm going to test you like Abraham was tested. And then again, the sun was laid on the wood. And God finished the thought that he started on Mount Moriah. He, he said, uh, you know, you came up here with... Look, look at how beautiful this is. You came up here following the God, the God that we've all been able to use natural human reasoning to arrive at, that the God would, gods would be angry at us, that there's forces beyond our control that we need to give something to. You came here expecting an angry God, but 
it goes the other way. This isn't a God who demands sacrifice from you. This is a God who sacrifices for you. This is what faith is, you guys. Giving it all. But after you've given it all, finding a God who's going to give you everything in return. That's what faith is. Aaron Ralston. A few years ago, he cut off his arm. Do you guys remember 127 Hours, the movie? Um, I'm going to read you a quote. This guy got his hand stuck in a boulder. A boulder fell and pierced, uh, caught, his, caught his arm there. And so he had, to, he had to cut his own arm off in order to get free. Um, I'm going I'm to read it to you. This is what he said in, a, in an article in, in GQ. On the canyoneering trip in Blue John Canyon in Utah, a boulder fell and pinned my right forearm, crushing it. I was trapped there for six days, and during that time didn't get a wink of sleep. I was going through very extreme transformations. I was in an altered state of consciousness from sleep deprivation, blood loss, and lack of oxygen to my brain, dehydration, hypothermia, and starvation. The days that I spent there were pure hell. The first pain was the pain of being trapped by the rock. My hand was numb, but my wrist was crushed to to half an inch. It felt like when you slam your finger in a car door, but sustained over six days, throbbing agony with every heartbeat. The actual cutting was a different kind of pain. There are nerve endings in certain parts of your arm tissue, so when I broke the bone, it hurt, of course, but for me, it was a happy moment because that was what was trapping me. It was the first time I realized I would soon be free. I broke the top, then the bottom, by bending the arm in configurations that I knew would snap it. That moment was the key to it all. If you can put yourself through all that and you're smiling a big, beaming, pearly grin, you know you're winning. That stayed with me for the next hour. I was cutting through the skin, hacking through the muscle, breaking down the tendon in my arm. I would feel the pain, then I would smile because the pain meant impending freedom. When I hit the main nerve, I had to snap it like I was plucking a guitar string with an upturned knife. And when I did that, it felt like I vaporized my arm to my shoulder. But at the end of that 30 seconds, I was smiling again. The best moment was when I got the last piece of flesh cut and I stepped back. It was a real feeling of happiness at all the possibilities available in life. So all that pain was over and I just headed back to my life. Something I try to share with people is my sense of perspective. When I was trapped there, suffering all these tremendous deprivations, I realized that I really wanted to live. I had the opportunity to kill myself just to put myself out of my misery, but I chose life. Trauma, when it happens, can be a blessing or a tragedy. It can be a good thing or the excuse we've been looking for our whole lives to just check out and not try. I made a decision that this would be my rebirth my opportunity to get my life back. It was a gift. And given the choice to erase what happened, I would still go back there and have things happen exactly as they did. I get a chance to share this joy with people. I'm going to say it again. I would feel the pain, then I would smile, because the pain meant impending freedom. That's the paradox of faith. That's why Abraham was able to go up the mountain with joy. Jesus said, you have to die to live. Let's expect faith to hurt. Let's expect faith to be hard. And these little things that we're claiming, claiming to, to make our uh, lives worth it, our ego, our success, our, uh, our, our money, they're keeping us at the rock. And that rock leads to death. 
Because all of those things, if you cling to those and aren't willing to give them up uh, to God, you will die there with them. You will, your, your life will, you make your life about work, you will retire. You make your life about money, you will part from it. You make your life about a relationship with another person even, and one of you is going to bury the other one of you, right? But the paradox of faith is that if we will give these things up to God, we will get a better version of them. Abraham gets a better version of Isaac. He gets to have Isaac in obedience to God. He gets to have Isaac again uh, with this immense gratitude because he's actually risked him. He gets to have Isaac back, uh, and, and the presence of God will now go with him to, to form a nation. When we give these things up to God, we get a much deeper version of the thing that we wanted in the first place. If, if, if you want work because you want some, some sense of purpose, God will give you a sense of purpose. God will give you a sense of purpose. He will align your heart with the love that you were made for. You will get a sense of purpose. If, if, if you want money, like, resources are all at God's whim. If, if you want, a, a, like, a deep relationship with somebody else, in heaven we will know and be known at the deepest level possible. When we give things up to God, we can do it with joy. Because we know that on the other side of the sacrifice, there's a God that cannot wait to give us everything. We can do it with joy. Because we know on the other side of the sacrifice, there is a God who cannot wait to give us everything. We know that on the other side of the sacrifice, there is a God who cannot wait to give us everything. There's a God who cannot wait to give us everything. Let's pray. God, speak to us now about uh, what we need to give to you. Yeah, we don't want to rush past um, how hard faith in you needs to be. God, we want to give things up so we can really live. Yeah, Jesus, please come and speak to people right now. Please make it clear. What, what do we give up? trust you, God.